When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. everyone, and thank you for joining me. I'm Tracy Harris, and this is At Home in My Head, the podcast that explores life in the cottage at Woodland Corners. Today's episode is part of a seven-part series titled Religious Self-Destruction that examines indoctrination using models borrowed from identity psychology. I'll be explaining what indoctrination means to me and why I consider it a distinctly unique process that should be differentiated from other life experiences. This series mirrors articles found at the At Home in My Head blog, each of which contains links to sources and citations used in this podcast. A link to the table of contents for the Religious Self-Destruction article series is also included in the description, along with links to support and resources for those who come out of indoctrination. And now for Episode 5 of Religious Self-Destruction, Introjection. The following quote was cited earlier as part of a short correspondence I had with Dr. Dombeck, who authored the first article I found that sent me down this path of discovery. The quote reads, A modern successor to Roger's work is Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, ACT, which discusses psychological flexibility as the core construct underlying whether psychopathology will be present or not. A person with foreclosed identity would not exhibit such flexibility and instead would be quite rigidly clinging to their introjected beliefs. In part four, I explained the idea of psychological flexibility, but the term introjected was new to me. So what is it? We've all heard of projection in psychology, the ability we have to incorrectly assume things about other people based on our own tendencies. I step into an elevator and I ask a stranger next to me, how about that game last night? I'm presuming he shares an interest in sports, but am corrected when he says, I don't really follow football. Or it could be something less mundane, where someone hurls a homophobic slur as an insult, presuming other people are as bigoted toward gay people as they are. When it comes to perspectives of myself, there's what I think about me, there's what you think about me, and then there's what I think you think about me. On that last one, consider how you feel when you awkwardly trip when no one else is around versus how you feel when you trip in front of other people. We are social animals, and often there's a sense of self-consciousness and embarrassment when we have an audience during a faux pas. Other people see us make mistakes, even innocent ones, and this causes us to think about how we're perceived by others. Most people have some level of discomfort about being judged negatively by the people around them because acceptance can be critical in societies. Also, it's an advantage to be able to accurately estimate what is in the minds of those around us. Theory of mind is a useful tool for members of social species. Think back to the SASB model we discussed in part four. It indicates you can protect yourself from unfair judgments and criticism. That is, most of us have the ability to understand when we're being unfairly blamed, and we recognize that we can and should stand up for ourselves, although we don't always act in our best interest. 
But what if we lacked the capacity to differentiate between fair and unfair criticisms aimed at us? Introjection happens when we absorb the judgments and expectations of others, good or bad, fair or unfair. Imagine a child who lacks the ability to understand we can and should evaluate what others think of us before absorbing it. Remember Jill's response to Jack? You're saying it was mean of me to not go to the movies with you, but I'm not responsible for your discomfort in going to the movie alone, and you can ask other friends who are interested in this movie to go with you. Well, we hone this skill, the flexibility to accept or reject inputs from others as we mature. We learn how to create boundaries between ourselves and others, that just because I like football doesn't mean someone else does. They are them, I am me. But what happens when rather than growing up in an environment where those boundaries are taught and supported, we're raised in a situation where the people around us, our caregivers who are tasked with teaching us about life and relationships, actually instill us with the idea that we should absorb the judgments of others, reasonable or unreasonable, and become responsible for them. The following was an example I encountered at the site of a mental health care facility that helped explain what the model represents for children, a demographic with limited world experience that has not developed these skills. Consider a situation where a parent tells a child, you never do anything right. The quote reads as follows. If this blaming interaction is repeated multiple times, the child will ultimately develop an introjected representation of himself as blameworthy. This occurs as the child internalizes a representation of the parent's blaming, other-focused perspective, and then experiences this internalized model of the blaming parent. Lastly, but most importantly, the child fails to discriminate this new internal voice as belonging to the parent, separate and distinct from his own voice. Once the introject forms, the child becomes harshly self-critical and self-attacking, and the parent no longer needs to be present in order for the child to feel badly about himself. Therefore, from the third perspective of the introject, the child's experience is one of deserving to be attacked, blameworthy. Note that this is not really the child's own perception, but rather a representation of the parent's perspective, which the child has now internalized and confused with his own. And that is where the quote ends. This, for me, was a large part of what I'd been looking for. Indoctrination, in a nutshell, is the process of getting a person to adopt imposed beliefs that are not derived from our nature and exploration. And as research into foreclosed identity indicates, we can recognize them through the dissonance they cause due to the fact they do not integrate gracefully with the reality of who we are, or in the case of conservative religion, just reality. Consider religious restrictions on sexuality, that a child who is gay will grow up hearing that they are straight and that the same-sex sexual thoughts are Satan's influence and must be dismissed. Consider all the downstream damage caused by this type of introjected belief. And again, this supports the foreclosed model by instructing the child to not indulge this discomfort or examine its implications. Ignore it, deny it, read in your Bible about how such thoughts are wrong, and pray for God to help you through them. While it was a relief to find beliefs can be introjected, it still didn't explain how religion accomplishes it on such a massive scale. Again, there are other things I'd been told repeatedly growing up and let go of without near the impact on my life. Religion wasn't just a single belief, but an entire framework of beliefs that have to be adopted together to make sense. Introjection is the result, not the process to get there. 
Still, it was a relief to finally understand it's possible to convince people of things that are antithesis to what they are predisposed to by nature. Not just false beliefs, but beliefs that actually conflict with our core identities. I was still left wondering, though, how religion pulled off the trick of convincing so many otherwise reasonable people that they deeply considered these beliefs when they hadn't. In the example with the child, he wouldn't be offended if you suggested he did some things right, or that his view of his inadequacy was not arrived at by exploration and deep consideration. As a foreclosed religious person, though, I would have insisted you were wrong. I would have known all the hours and years of study I'd put in. I would have never accepted it was unproductive effort that didn't add to the values I had ultimately adopted. How was I so convinced I had explored when clearly I was grossly ignorant about nearly all the relevant information and fields of study, including those around my own holy book? While I pondered these things, I also noticed the material I encountered for interjection was primarily focused on shame and blame. Here are a few examples. This quote, Everyone experiences shame at some time, but not everyone is ruled by toxic or overwhelming shame. Some researchers suggest that shame comes about from repeatedly being told, not that we did something bad, but that we are something bad. End quote. An important note here is the focus on the actor rather than the action. In the earlier example, you never do anything right is condemnation of the child, the actor, not the action. If I try to learn to tie my shoes but get it wrong, I can try again and do better. Telling me, you messed up tying your shoes, still leaves me with an outlet for improvement. But when you say the error is because I never do anything right, that's an inherent flaw in me as the actor. It's the difference between saying, I screwed up, and I am a screw-up. This becomes very important later when we look at religious messages about the inherent evil nature of humankind. Here's another quote. High levels of shame are correlated with poor psychological functioning. In particular, eating disorders and many sexual disorders can largely be understood as disorders of shame, as can narcissism, which is sometimes thought of as a defense against shame. And here's another quote. The distance between who one truly is and who one feels a need to be in order to fit in, to be normal, or to be acceptable, is often the culprit of many of the psychological problems that people report within therapy. End quote. I was beginning to understand it was my contention that indoctrination is a process that creates foreclosed identities, where a person holds powerfully to interjected beliefs they have adopted without much scrutiny. But beyond that question was how religion could also convince these same adherents that they actually had adequately explored these values before adopting them. In part six, we'll look at some of the tools used in authoritarian conservative Christianity that align with these models and examine the processes behind indoctrination. for this episode of At Home in My Head, exploring life in the cottage at Woodland Corners. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to check out the information and support links in the description. As always, stay safe, be well, and never stop exploring.